0: Hello, left fielders welcome to the passive investing from left field podcast our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently let's go
1: anybody selling right now probably has to sell i mean why would anybody list a deal right now it doesn't make sense so if their deal is being listed most likely they have to sell their debt coming up or just literally right before the podcast five minutes before someone in the group sent me something where partnership is splitting up so there's a deal out there right because the partnerships are could be a divorce or health issue so there are always deals out there to say it's essentially a bad deal make an offer make an offer based on what you think is going to work for you
0: Hey Leftfielders, this is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pyfer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there.
2: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community.
0: This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Mark Kenny with us. He is the founder and CEO of Think Multifamily, an operator that acquires, owns, and operates multifamily apartments. Mark, welcome to the Passive Investing from Field podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Super excited to be on.
0: So the first question I always ask is, if you could take some minutes and talk about your financial journey, how did you get into real estate? How did you become an operator? And then how did you become an educator for new operators?
1: Yeah, so- I started investing in small multifamily in college, started so a senior in college along with my twin brother, Michael. It's like 29 years ago, so quite a while ago, and continued to buy small properties. I was a CPA for a while, did IT consulting, worked for the big four as a manager consultant, and then started my own IT company and got married pretty young, continued to buy small properties. And then 2013, my IT business was doing, at least I thought pretty well financially and things like that. But I was literally working like 90 plus hours a week, not just like once in a while. That was my lifestyle and sleep three hours a night on average. So definitely not a good lifestyle and caused some issues for some reason. My wife, I'm not sure why, but, <laughs> but it did. So she kind of was like, this is not working. You'd be something differently. So I'm like, okay, we both really liked real estate. I had a friend of mine that was syndicating in 2013, just a fancy word for raising money from other people, group purchasing to buy larger deals basically. And I had some retirement money invested in his deal with a multifamily deal. I'm like, this kind of makes sense. So both my wife and I were like, let's try to take a shot at this. We looked at a lot of different things before we concluded, this is where we wanted to go. And so we started doing our own deals. Took us about a year to get a deal or so. Syndicating our deal, we've done over a hundred total deals as a general partner, over a billion dollars. And it was really in 13 states, but it was a little bit slower than I wanted to initially. Took, like I said, took like a year to get a deal. And we just started looking at different parts of the country because we thought maybe certain areas were a little bit more attractive and started expanding that way. And then my whole goal initially was, hey, all I need to do is replace half my IT income and still be okay, right? But we far surpassed that, which is great financially. And then the education piece, really, circumstances were, had no desire to do education at all, zero. And through some circumstances and frankly, being involved in different organizations and things like that. And I thought the education was very lacking to be frank with other groups. And I also thought the transparency of issues you run into wasn't there. And as I went through deals, I was kind of like, why didn't people tell me this? I wish I knew what I know now. So we slowly became where we were doing webinars here and there and half day events, then full day events, and then full fledged one-on-one coaching, both my wife and I, Fell in love with it. It's a community. It's called Family Syndication Group. People kind of working together to do deals, but wasn't anything I intended to doing at all. I mean, I was an IT guy, CPA, and my wife, fortunately, Tamia, was the community type person and wanted to have a family vibe. We do a vacation together as well with people in our group and summer. That's how we kind of landed. So real estate. Not sure how I ended into it initially because there was nobody that I knew was doing it. My brother and I were more analytical. And we're like, nah, people need a place to live. Let's buy some real estate. And so we started doing that. Didn't know what we were doing. And then education piece was more through circumstances and then the community aspect my wife Tamil. So that's kind of how we got involved in that area.
0: That's interesting. You know, I, I had a not a similar story, but an unintentional entrance into real estate as well. You know, it seems like everybody either reads the, the purple book by Robert Kiyosaki, or they just get a small start and then they keep going, keep going, and eventually you find out that yeah, you're running a community or now you're an operator and teaching others. So it's interesting how people get in into this business for sure. I want to talk a little bit about just think multifamily and your process because it is unique and you go through stretches and I'm on your deal list. I'm invested in multiple deals of yours, but you go through stretches where there's quite a few deals coming through at the same time. And I'd like to talk about how you source deals. And I think a lot of these probably come from some of your students and you GP on them can you talk about that process? How involved are you with those deals? And how do you manage when you have three or four deals coming through in a month?
1: Yeah. So sourcing deals, somebody starting out just like when we started out on your own, if you want to say is you're meeting brokers. It's not just phone call. You need to potentially jump on a plane, meet them face to face, build those relationships. You want to be touring deals with them because they get kudos from their sellers the more tours they have and things like that. So you definitely want to, to do that, it's not every week or every month necessarily, but develop that relationship. That's where most people start out. A lot of people starting out, call brokers, and it's a little bit crazy to call and say, oh, I want all your off-market deals. I mean, who do you think the brokers are gonna give deals to? They're someone that's brand new or someone they've done 20 deals with. It just, I mean, we need to be upfront about that. You're not gonna get the off-market deals brand new. You're just not. So starting out, it's getting on email list, meeting the brokers, a lot of deal flow, looking at a ton of deals, I don't look at any deals. Typically they come to me in emails anymore. It's usually brokers reaching out to me directly with, they know what we like, what we, as far as our game plan and properties and the areas we like. And there's some brokers we've done over 20 deals with. So we were on the short list for sure. And so we'll get deals. Now I get deals that way. Brokers contacting me for deals, which is great. As you mentioned, we do have a one-on-one coaching people across the country. They're out looking for deals too. They can leverage, if you want to say, the Think Multifamily brand. As far as with brokers, we provide all our contacts. There are no brokers. We say, oh, they're super special. We won't share those with anybody, which is a benefit to us as well with people out looking across the country. So we do have, in some cases, a lot of deals. We'll have total group-wise about 30 deals this year closing, which is a lot. Doesn't mean we don't ever have stress here and there, especially you mentioned three or four deals. Three or four deals might be a blessing. We've had 11 deals all at once, which is a lot, just a timing thing, how things work and things like that. So a lot of capital to bring to the deals and there are a lot of things outside your control. Lenders, how slow they are, or I would say how fast doesn't exist It's really how slow they are. <laughs> yeah. And other things happen, right? you just out of your control. So it doesn't matter how good you are, or how smart you think you are, or how much experience you have. There's still things that you can't control. So that's kind of the way I get deals as far as the broker relationships we've had and and things like that. And then, like I said, if you're new, you probably need somebody that's been there, done that, some sort of relationship-wise. And then when we have a bunch of deals going out there like that, we also have to be strategic. So there's usually a minimum to close a deal and there's a max. And minimum might exclude things like, hey, the general partnership acquisition fee or a contingency. So we've had to make decisions on certain deals We're getting to the minimum and we're moving on to the next deal. The average person doesn't have this many deals going on at once. But if you do have multiple deals going on, you're going to have to be very tactical in some cases and triage. I mean, every day, almost on a daily basis, I'm dealing with something going on on a deal, either a broker situation or a seller situation. You get very good at negotiating. You have to be fair, a good buyer, a good seller, not a pushover, but a good buyer and good seller. And sellers give us a lot of favors because of our reputation and us being good buyers.
0: How do the students that are bringing some of these deals to you, how does that work? Because as an investor, just to be honest, sometimes I get nervous. Okay. Yeah. You trained somebody. This is their first deal. I don't know that I want to be in on somebody's first deal. Now it makes it a lot better that you're on the deal because of your experience. And so that makes me feel more comfortable. But as a passive investor, how do I vet that? Or how do I get comfortable with someone brand new, even though they're partnering with someone very experienced?
1: Yeah, I think it would probably depends on what the partner's doing. So on any deal then pushed out that you would have seen if I'm on it, I'm the key principal on the loan as well. In a lot of cases, I'm the only principal. So I have an incentive for the deal to perform. I'm not doing the day-to-day asset management piece of it. I get a fair bit of my time is spent on questions related to asset management. But as we've grown... Someone concluded that, hey, people, no matter how good they are in business or how smart they are, there are differences to asset managing a property. So we have a major focus in 2023. We just went through literally two full days, eight, nine hours a day, strategy sessions. And one of the top priorities for us is operations and asset management, putting the overall perspective. You can't have people all just doing what they want to do, right? Even though you give them bumpers and guidelines, we need more visibility in certain things. So It's an area that we're blowing out in a good way in 2023 to put those controls in place. Because we had certain people that, like I said, they're nothing they're doing, like they're not stealing money or anything like that, but there are some cases the visibility that they're providing isn't necessarily what it needs to be. So we're putting that in the forefront now and saying we will have visibility and everything going on on a deal. And we'll have not just like guidelines, but rules that you will follow. And then going forward, people that are newer, that come into the group and do a deal, we're going to have whatever term you want to use, some sort of certified asset manager that will be on any deal. And the new person will just be able to shadow them. But the certified person, that's the term that I'm just using, will be the one also making the decisions on deals, which frankly we have not had in the past.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned a key principle. Can you talk about what that means and what that is and what that means to an investor?
1: For sure. So some people will use these terms interchangeably, but they're not really general partner. So you have a limited partner, the investor in the deal. General partners, kind of the managers of a deal. They're the ones that will have equity. And then you will have a key principal or a loan guarantor. That's the person signing the loan. From a requirement standpoint with a lender, three main things they're going to look at. One, the person's experience. You can't just sign on a loan just because you have money. You also have to experience the general statement. And then the lender is going to say, hey, If you have a $20 million loan, you need to have $20 million or more net worth. Now that can be a combination of people. And then your liquidity, once you close a deal, needs to be typically 10% or more. So in the $20 million example, $2 million or more liquid post-closing. Again, it can be a combination of people. So you can have general partners on a deal that are not key principles on the loan. If they're not needed or necessary, maybe they're not gonna be on the loan. And you could be very rare you could have a key principal that isn't really a general partner per se. The lender will most likely make them be a manager. So, indirectly, they'll be that way. But the compensation could be maybe just give the person some sort of compensation for signing the loan and you don't get equity. That'd be unusual, but there's not a requirement to do that. So, key principal, because called call KP is really a guarantor on the loan. Now, the loans we do historically have been non recourse loans. I think 800 million or so in non recourse loan non-recourses mean you don't have personal liability. The lender looks at that individual property by itself. And if there was an issue, yes, they could do something related to that property, but they can't come after you personally, provided you haven't done anything fraudulent, things like
0: that. Another thing that I think is interesting about your group is it seems like, at least in the last few years, you've been having deals go full cycle very quickly, which is great. So can you talk about why that is, what you do to do that. And with the changing environment, there's multiple questions, I apologize, but with the changing environment, is it still something that you want to do? Because then the investors have to reallocate capital and there aren't as many deals to put their money into. So it was a positive a couple of years ago. Is it still positive? I don't know.
1: Right. So we have a lot of deals that are projected to be five to six year holds. And a lot of cases we've exited much, much faster for a couple of reasons. One, A lot of the deals we were doing were very distressed deals. In some cases, 0% occupied, 20% occupied. A lot of reasons, probably different podcasts, why I don't like those deals as much, although they performed very, very well. But a lot of reasons I don't like them too. But an example like that, we'll get, you know, we'll have a bridge loan. We don't have all the prepayment penalties after typically a year that you're going to have on a Fannie or Freddie. So we can get out of a deal and sell it without having to pay in some cases, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in prepayment penalties. If we have a bridge loan for two to three years, we can say, do you want to sell or do we want to refinance it? What do we want to do? Those deals that are stressed, usually after a couple of years, 18 to 24 months, you pretty much put all the capital in and leasing it up. And then you make a decision to say, do you want to refinance, which typically is tax-free to the investors, which is great, or sell. Now we sold I think it was 22 deals in 2021, so a lot. And I would like to say it's because we're geniuses and we figured out what was gonna happen. It's not the case. We, some cases got lucky, just reality, right? People act like they know everything was gonna happen in the market. It's ridiculous people say that in my mind, but it was good timing for sure. We sold at the top of the market and there'll be another top of the market, by the way, down the road, don't know, know when it'll happen, but there will be. And we could look back and say, man, we sold that for $120,000 a door Now ounce worth 180. I get that, but really good timing on the sale. And in some cases, I look at it this way. If we projected, let's just say, for example, we're going to double somebody's money in six years, which is getting harder to do, by the way. But let's say we assume that in the pro forma on a deal from one to two years ago, and we can sell the deal and make that much. Or some cases, we sold properties after 18 months and it was like 70, 80% return, plus the equity. In my mind, there's a disproportionate amount of equity capture Let's say 70% after let's just say 18 months, that's there, plus the huge depreciation allocation, whether people can use it or not, that year or not, but allocated to investors in the first years, disproportionately high. And we said, well, if we hold this for another three years, maybe we'll make 10% extra per year, 30%. That's kind of a made up number, but I'm there is a disproportionate amount of equity capture. If we looked at deals in 2021 and said, These are like 45% annualized returns in some cases or higher in some cases. And someone might say, you said it's going to be 100% return. Well, yeah, after six years, but we're giving you 70% after 18 months. I don't think anybody should be complaining about that. And they're not typically. But I think the position we were in, we were doing a lot of bridge debt before a lot of the people were, gave us an advantage. And then I do think after a certain point in time, it really comes down to, you asked about like the going forward, whether we're going to keep doing that or not. I don't know. It's probably going to be harder to do. I mean, there's no one really knows what's going to happen with the rates, but there isn't a single deal yet we've done that we haven't performed it It with a minimum of five years, five to six years. So it wasn't like we projected we're going to sell this after 18 months or 24 months. It wasn't anticipated. We don't perform that way or anything like that. going forward. We still do a lot of bridge debt. We do fix debt to agency. There are pros and cons to each of those scenarios, and each deal is kind of looked at a little bit uniquely. Our average hold has been less than, I think, three years as a whole. But, you know, if a deal is a nicer deal, if you want to say, I mean, you put money into it, or it's just a nicer property versus a lot of properties we bought that after a certain number of years, five years. So you're going to have CapEx again. You're like, do we have the money to recapitalize this property? So that's why a lot of people end up selling. There are certain deals we've bought before that just physically, you know, like a chiller system, which heats and cools. One device is heating cooling the entire complex, right? Not ideal if it goes down. So that's just a physical characteristic. And it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars to replace all the plumbing and the chiller itself and things like that. So we looked at certain deals where we had like that too, like just physical characteristic-wise, cast iron plumbing, don't like it. Chiller system, don't like it really. Would we want to hold this longer term? And the answer typically be no. Doesn't mean it's a bad investment. We actually bought a couple of deals still with chillers. But that's kind of what you look at. I think as a syndicator, you owe it to your investors to do some sort of capital event, provided you can, whether it's a refi or a sale, within the time frame you... Projected, and if you can't do that for whatever reason, may the refi or, or things like that, I think you should sell the property. All things being equal, when syndicators go in and say, "Well, I'm just going to keep holding this," I have a partner on deals that doesn't want to sell any property ever, for they can tell. That's not the syndication model. But your question about redeploying the capital—it's an issue in some cases. What do you do with that capital? The advantage is if you put it into a brand new deal for the year. You get, generally speaking, right now, huge depreciation benefits allocated to you, where if you hold a property after the first year, it drastically goes down how much you're getting per year for depreciation. So that's another reason some people do like to redeploy the capital.
0: Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the US, they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily, or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us LFI. I don't mind having the capital sent back because it's usually more than I gave you, right? You're giving me that plus the appreciation and all the cash flow. Just now there's so many fewer deals out there. Can you talk about what you're seeing from deal flow? Because I've talked to some other experienced operators and I don't know that I agree with this, but they say, you know, if someone is buying deals right now, they've either found the best deal ever, the unicorn, or they're investing in bad deals. And I don't know if that's true or not, but how do you see it?
1: Well, I would reverse it, frankly. I think the statement's a little bit ridiculous, frankly. But I look at it, anybody selling right now probably has to sell. I mean, why would anybody list a deal right now? It doesn't make sense. So if their deal is being listed, most likely they have to sell. Their debt's coming up or just literally right before the podcast, five minutes before someone in the group sent me something where partnership is splitting up. So there's a deal out there, right? Because the partnerships are could be a divorce or a health issue. So there are always deals out there. To say it's essentially a, a bad deal, make an offer. Make an offer based on what you think is going to work for you. The deal flow has been way down, picked back up again about five weeks ago. And then that was like, literally, this is bizarre to me and people make decisions based on daily information, which is not wise. But when the inflation took a little bit of a dip, a little bit right here recently, a bunch of deals got listed the next week. And I can tell you already this week, a bunch of deals being listed. Why? Because the Fed is now saying, well, we might taper back a little bit. Well, we don't know if they are going to or not. And taper back meaning what, 50 basis points? I mean, the fact is there's still an impact. So people are literally making daily decisions or making decisions based on daily information, which is crazy in my mind. But I can tell you we're about as active as anybody else in there. We're still getting deals sent to us to review. To your point, not all of them make sense. Some do make sense. And the Fed hasn't kept up with, hasn't allowed time for pe- thing to say. Okay, what's really the impact? So now they're like, "Oh my gosh, what do we do?" So already seen this this week alone, a lot of deals being listed, and it's not all listed. Someone just broker called me right before this call too with a deal here in Dallas. I think you should always be looking. Doesn't mean you're always buying. Always be looking. Always making offers, no matter what. Somebody new right now getting into the industry brokers as a general state may have more time right now than they've had ever in the last X number of years. So if you're new, start building those relationships. People are like, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. For what? I mean, sit on the sidelines and do what? Put it in the bank? Put it in the stocks? I don't know where I put your money, but people always look at it from, oh, well, I only made this on this return or whatever. Like, you're making 2% in the bank. I mean, the stock market, I think it was down 24%, like October. So look at it as a hedge potentially. Yeah. Are some of these deals not going to make as much as we would have thought a year ago? It's true. They're not. Based on at least the short term, there's no way they're going to with interest rate hikes and things like that. Will they eventually, two, three years from now? Maybe. I don't know. But what are you comparing it against for an investment?
0: And you mentioned bridge debt, that you have some of your deals that have bridge debt and that maybe you might still be buying deals with bridge debt. And I think that term has been a little bit toxic lately because people are so nervous about cap rates rise, interest rates rising and hitting the caps. And I just had a deal where the operator did a refinance into a higher interest rate because they had hit the cap and they had to escrow so much cash to satisfy the bank requirements. So can you talk about that kind of debt, the bridge debt that you have on current deals and how you're protecting yourselves and investors to make sure that you don't end up in that situation, as well as the same question. I mean, if you're buying new deals with bridge debt, how are you structuring it so that you're protected if interest rates do continue to rise?
1: Yeah, no, good question for sure. So Bridge versus, let's say, agency, Fannie, Fannie, Freddie, typically fixed debt, typically no CapEx money on an agency. So if you had a big CapEx, you're going to get zero. Leverage is lower. So bridge is, people think it's a super high interest rate. Well, it's not that much higher necessarily than some of the agency. It can be shorter term. Shorter term is relative. We still try to get, call it 311. So it's basically five years total, which is a pretty long time. You look at any cycle that's been down and it's, it has not been that long. So it gives you some time to meet your business plan and things like that. The interest rate going up, there is something called like an insurance policy hedge. It's a rate cap, not cap rate, but rate cap. Think of it as a interest rate protection. We have over 20 deals right now where we get monthly checks for properties because our rate cap has been hit. So let's say you have, you can't go above, let's say 7% and it goes to 8% or 9%. Well, this insurance policy that we had to pay for which is very expensive right now, by the way, we actually get checks sent to us on a monthly basis for that. So if you underwrite your deal based on the interest rate, the highest it could go to for your duration of your whole, this highest is going to go to probably won't go that high over four or five year period might go up and you'll get a check sent to you and it might end up going down. So that's probably the biggest difference. Now, a lot of Lenders for a long time didn't really require, depending on who the lender was, didn't require this rate cap. We have a handful of deals that don't have rate cap. I don't like it. I think going forward, buy one no matter what. But a rate cap to put it in perspective, one that was sixty thousand dollars a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, probably eight hundred thousand dollars now for the same protection. I think after six months, it went up nine hundred percent on costs. Or you say, you know what? I'll just put the money in the bank and use it that way. Now, rate caps have value. We have rate caps right now. If we sold a property, we'd get the profits from the property and well over a million dollars for a rate cap. You can sell them back to the market. They're very valuable. That's really the only way you're gonna protect yourself on a variable rate. And the other one is maybe just try to get a fixed debt loan. It would be higher rate right now, but you know where you're at. And the other thing is that some people are looking at, we're looking at a couple of refis, not that I really want to, but some recourse debt with like local banks you get 10 year or more terms, it's fixed rate, things like that. But again, it's recourse, personal liability, either full recourse or partial recourse. So those are some ways you can kind of protect yourself in that environment. And then the advantage potentially is if you have a five-year term like that, and then rates do go down, you can maybe go into Fannie or Freddie two, three years down the road, hopefully with a lower rate, you don't know. And then there are also deals right now that there are always deals where loan assumptions. So we got a deal sent to us that was below, I think, a 3% interest rate. And you could assume that loan disadvantages, the leverage is really low, but you know what you're getting. The loan's already there, it's in place. There's no variable. You don't have to guess to say, hey, 100 days from now, when I close the deal, what's the rate going to be? And that's the issue people run into right now. And it's a legitimate
0: issue. And so if you're a passive investor, and you know that you have three or four deals out there that have bridge debt, what questions should we be asking operators to make sure that we're protected? I mean, there's obviously we're already invested. There's not much we can do. There's nothing we can do. But are there questions we should be asking to make sure that our operators are on top of it and have done the things they need to do to protect the investment?
1: Yeah. Any deal in my mind that right now, first question would be, do they have a rate cap? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, then you would probably ask, hey, can you underwrite the deal using that highest interest rate it can go to? And how do we look from a cash flow standpoint? If there is no rate cap, because what it wasn't required, if it wasn't required, people weren't buying them necessarily, right? Back in the day, but no rate cap. The question would be, how much would it be to buy a rate cap today? Which you can buy after closing, buy one, any deal we have right now that is a variable rate. How much would it be to buy a rate cap? What does it look like? And then the other one would be, Any deal we have a variable right now, that's the first question. Second one is, have we gotten a broker opinion of value to see what the property's worth? Maybe we do sell the property. I mean, it could be a deal, frankly, that you break it even is a win. It could be right now. I mean, not ideal, but it could be. And then those are the primary ones. And then have you looked at doing a refinance into a fixed debt, including potentially like a local bank? Those are probably the three main things that you could ask. And the answer could be, looked at a rate cap, too expensive. Oh, okay. Too expensive relative, but it could really be, right? Because they're sky high in some cases. Looked at a BOV. We won't even break even right now. We probably need to ride it out then in my mind. And then the refi, they need to do those things in my mind. Anyone that has a variable rate right now. And what's a BOD? BOV, broker opinion of value. Basically, you would have one or more brokers that would look at your property. And independently, they'll provide what they think the price would be if you sold it to the market today.
0: Okay, Interesting in the past, I'm not sure if you still are, you accept non-accredited investors. In our community, most are, are accredited. I think but we have quite a few of non-accredited investors. And I'd like to hear, why do you accept non-accredited? Are you going to continue that? And how can non-accredited investors find a place where they can invest their money because there aren't that many options?
1: First, non-accredited versus accredited, it's financial. Purely financial, right? So you either are You meet the requirement or you don't meet and your net worth minus your house and then your and or your annual salary with your spouse. If you're married or individual, you either know you are or you're not. If you're not, then we can take non-accredited investors in up to 35. So there is a rule. We can't take in more than 35 non-accredited investors in any given deal. The reason we do it, we've done both. So we've done both as far as offerings where we just accept only accredited. We've done majority of them by far where we accept both. We started out doing that as I've gotten older. I would say that a lot of people that kind of invested with us are mostly all accredited now. But there are people in our group too that are younger and or getting started. And some of their people are, for them We cut $50,000 is a pretty big deal to invest. And they don't have the net worth or the annual salary to be accredited. So that's primarily why we're doing it. You can argue with the accredited only. You can go and advertise, post that on Facebook, the billboard if you want to get investors. Yeah, I mean, we've done that. Usually I would say that's getting people into your investor list for future deals, probably not so much on the current deal because you still probably need to have a call with them and things like that. You don't have to, you're not required to. But finding it, I think a lot of people don't accept non-accredited, at least in the syndication space. But we pretty much majority of them. I mean, we've only done like three or four out of a hundred and plus deals that have been accredited. only. There's really no disadvantage to us in my mind, as far as doing that, because like I said, the advertising is really related to future deals more so than your current deal. People think I'll just put a post out there on Facebook and fund my deal. Probably not. Not probably going to happen. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. And so does it make a difference who you're partnering with, whether it's an accredited or not accredited deal? Because if you're partnering with students, does that matter? Or you can still do non-accredited? It doesn't really
1: too much. We've done it. So we started out the first deal we did, which was accredited only. We're like, we don't know how it's going to go, right? And we don't. So we ended up doing it on a small raise. You know, maybe it was a $3 million raise or whatever it was just to see how it was going to go. And we pushed out our webinar and things like that. And we got a lot of people into our cycle that way, investor list. But we just did one recently that was accredited only. But to me, I usually let the lead if you want to say who found the deal, sourced it, what they want to do. I don't think there's much difference for us, frankly, raising capital, at least on the think multifamily side, probably about the same for that current deal. And there's some other stuff you can do, even if you haven't decided yet, whether you're going to do call it file six B file c doesn't really matter, but whether you're going to take just accredited and, or you're going to do a deal that's Hey, I'm going to do this deal. It's only non accredited and accredited that type of scenario. There's some things you can still do even today that will allow you to advertise early in the process. If that's your goal to advertise, you can talk to an attorney about how you can do that to kind of test the waters type scenario. But it's really more of a discussion deal by deal, how we're going to do it.
0: Switching gears a little bit, you're in Arkansas and some other interesting markets. Can you talk about why you're not just Dallas, Phoenix, Atlanta, but you're also in some of these smaller areas?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I started in Dallas and then went to Georgia next, Atlanta. And even in Georgia, there are some smaller markets like Gainesville, people never heard of, probably Dalton, people never heard of. These are great, great little markets. They really are. Arkansas, I actually love the market. Bought probably a dozen deals there over the last couple of years and just exited our first two. Some of these markets that people don't realize that people grew up there, they live there, they never move. In a lot of cases... The bad debt is much lower in some of these markets versus a transient market like Atlanta or parts of Florida and things like that. So there's some advantages there. Arkansas is extremely landlord-friendly as a whole. And when people say Texas is landlord-friendly, I'm like, that's not true. But yeah, we all thought that until COVID hit. And now we have judges that are frankly liberals, not to be whatever, but they are, and they don't think people should have to pay rent. Well, you know what? We experienced that in Texas. So making a blanket statement, it's county by county. Really is is how that's doing. I do like the major markets. Some of the tertiary markets very select now. And in some cases, we're in some markets probably won't go back into because I just I don't like them enough. They're not that they're bad markets, but all things being equal. There are better tertiary markets in my mind that we would probably concentrate on. And you also have to look at it from the standpoint how do investors look at a market. We bought a ton in Memphis. I mean, started five, six years ago. People cringe. Memphis, I mean, they make a face, right? When they say it, well. I can tell you our deals in Memphis have like kicked butt on returns. We are buying deals for twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars 30000 a door, but there are also other incentives there where they have like a pilot program for taxes. You have to put a lot of capital into the deal, but they cut your property taxes in half and freeze it for 20 years. I mean, property tax is one of the biggest expenses you can possibly have on your expense line items. So that's an advantage there. I wouldn't probably go back into Memphis right now, personally, not that I think it's a bad market, but I think we, we got in early, got probably a little lucky. there a long time, so a lot of deals, made a lot of money. But it's getting more expensive in my mind for, in my opinion, what that market should sustain. We have properties there over a $100,000 a door now that we could sell. That's high in my mind for that market. So we've gone to a lot of different markets, mostly trying to get out of some of the primary markets where really was getting really, really expensive. We were out of Dallas for several years, came back about two years ago back into Dallas because we started evaluating how Dallas compared to some of the other areas across the country, primarily in Georgia and Florida were like, the house looks pretty attractive again right now. So we started buying here again as well. We still buy in Florida and Georgia and things like that. But I would be, be a little cautious on any real tertiary market, unless you kind of know the market. And we learned a lot from these tertiary markets and the ones we like and the ones frankly we don't like. And there are certain markets for whatever reason, you just have bad tenants almost across the board. You don't necessarily know that, experience that to you there, but there are markets like that for whatever reason. It had nothing to do with COVID or, you know, things like that. It's just like, it's a function of the market or trying to get someone to operate it. As far as a property management company, there aren't good operators there from a PM side, property management side that can really manage the properties either. That's a problem. So we've learned a lot of these things by doing different
0: deals. And that's how you learn, right? That makes sense to me. The last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to, assuming you're a podcast listener? I listen a
1: lot. I like the real estate guys a lot, Robert and Russ. I mean, the reason I like parts of their podcast really come down to more around, they talk about a lot of different things other than just real estate. So that's cool. Somebody's a little bit of doom and gloom, but I love those guys. Some of the guys they have on there are even, look, I was right. I'm like, yeah, you were right, but you've been wrong for 10 years. Now you're right just like, you know <laughs> what I mean? That type of stuff. But I do, they're great guys. They have great content. They have really smart guys down there and they talk about a lot of other things other than just real estate. So it's a great podcast.
0: I can't agree with you more on that one. If people want to get in touch with you and learn more about Think Multifamily, what's the best way to do that? Email me. It's
1: Mark, M-A-R-K at com. That's the best way.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. This was super informative and we appreciate your time and thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit AshcroftCapital.com/invest in 2022. That's AshcroftCapital.com/invest in 2022.
1: This is Zach Hafensoll, CEO and co-founder of Rise Forty Eight Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E-4-8 equity.com backslash invest thats rise 48 equitycom backslash invest
0: I learned a lot in that episode with Mark, very appreciative he came on. I found his entrance into real estate was similar in that to me as it's not intentional. And I always find that interesting when people get in and they're not really looking to. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, he's a syndicator and he's training other syndicators. And he and his wife decided to do that. And it turned into a passion and something that they really love, which I think is great. We talked a lot about bridge debt and how he kind of got into bridge debt before it was popular. And maybe even before there were rate caps and how he's dealing with the bridge debt and he's still willing to buy uh deals with bridge debt if he has rate caps and protected it and he puts a lot of money into these deals himself and he has a lot of experience so i think his opinion of the market is you don't just shut your eyes and stop buying which i know a lot of people are doing and have been talking about but he's still looking at every deal and analyzing it and if it makes sense he's going to go ahead and invest it and i think that's the way to go you can't just in good times invest and in bad times around and do nothing it doesn't mean invest in bad deals and still have your same standards but you just have to work harder to find the right deals and that's what he does and his model of having his students go out and find deals then he was the code gp on him that makes me nervous in one sense in the other sense he gets to review a lot of deals so he's constantly learning and he's finding the good ones and you cannot argue with his success he has turned those deals over and has returned capital to his investors which is of course the goal and what we all want. I also like that he seems fairly committed to sticking with the allowing non-accredited investors to be part of his investments. And we need more of that. There's lots of people out there who aren't accredited and they deserve these opportunities as well. So I'm super appreciative of Mark that he allows non-accredited people to get into his deals. And the other thing, he doesn't think that he knows everything. He's still learning and he's still humble and he must be doing something right as i said because he is successful and think multifamily has done a ton of deals and even though the one i had uh, one of the ones that went full cycle they had a fire and there was some bad stuff that happened but they managed to fix it and use the adversity and still were able to sell that three years or four years before their pro forma had them doing it i think we sold in year two and i think it was a six-year pro forma so they are definitely on the right track. And again, I really like the fact that they take non-accredited and Mark was a great guy to talk to. So we'll certainly be following them and seeing what new deals come up. That's it for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field.